This episode is sponsored by our friends over at H&E Publishing. They're a reformed, evangelical, and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. To see their full list of titles, check out their website at hesedandemmet.com. That's H-E-S-E-D and E-M-E-T dot com. On this episode of the London Lyceum, we bring back our friend Dr. Craig Carter to talk about Nicene Orthodoxy and its metaphysical commitments. So in a previous episode, we had invited Dr. R.T. Mullins to come on and critique some of what Dr. Carter had said in a Credo Magazine article. And in true fashion, we offered the same opportunity to Dr. Carter, who graciously accepted and talked with us about these types of topics. So we think through what does Nicene Orthodoxy require, metaphysically speaking? Can we simply affirm Thomistic metaphysics without restricting what the Bible has to say? Can non-classical theists affirm creation ex nihilo? And does creation ex nihilo really entail the classical attributes? We talk about this and a lot more in this episode. If you have thoughts about it or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out on our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that hopes to foster thinking, uh, particularly among our Baptist uh, friends, uh, by creating an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today we have our friend, Dr. Craig Carter, back on the show. Um, And to talk specifically about a previous episode that we had done. So I'll give you a little bit of context. Uh, Dr. Carter had done, I guess, he put on... There was kind of an interview on Credo Magazine uh, talking through theistic personalism um, and classical theism and things like that. And uh, it riled up uh, our friend, uh, R.T. Mullins, and he direct messaged me on Twitter and was like, hey, I want to talk about these things. And so we ended up having a podcast episode with him uh, critiquing some of what Dr. Carter had said. And in true and fair fashion, we want to give everybody a chance to come on if they feel like um, they want to talk about it. So we've got Dr. Carter back to kind of reply to some of the things that uh, Ryan had said. So, you know, Ryan, for the most part, I guess, is defending uh, theistic personalism from various charges, or I guess, depending on how you define and what you call theistic personalism, uh, he's defending it. So, Dr. Carter, I know... You're, well, I guess now I just saw on the internet, this is maybe your last year at Tyndale. Um, so I don't know, what, should I give you the title of theologian in residence at your church? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you de- decide how you want to be uh, called. Far too, but, young be, far too young to be retired. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you're not retired. You're, you're an active theologian. You've got several books out. You've got a new one coming out. Um, all related to the classical theism, the great tradition, interpreting scripture and all these things. So we'll link to those in the show notes so you can go get it. Um, Dr. Carter, I want to give you the floor to start and just say, okay, so if our listeners have listened to the previous episode, they're going to have some context. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I tell you, if you're listening to this right now, pause, go listen to that one first and now come back. Now, Dr. Carter, you've, I want to give you the floor first to talk to, I guess, what do you think is the most important thing that you want to get across as, well, 
Mullins doesn't get this right. He's misunderstanding this, or or I should think this about God. I'll, I'll just let you open it up for us as we get into it. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and talk about this. Um, first, some definitions. Um, I, I want to, 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 theistic personalism, theistic mutualism, classical theism, what do all these terms mean? Okay, so classical theism is the historic Orthodox doctrine of the Church of God. It says that God is um, simple, eternal, perfect, self-existent, um, immutable, the first cause of the universe. He's pure act. There's no potentiality in God. And classical theism has been the the uh, the metaphysical slash doctrinal. It's it's a combination of biblical revelation about God as the transcendent creator, plus the metaphysical implications of that. And it has developed over um, about a th- about six, seven hundred years, um, really about over, over a thousand years, to its classical form in the first 43 questions of Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica. Now, the, the, the term that I think is best placed in opposition to classical theism is the term relational theism. And relational theism is a umbrella term for a number of specific ter- specific movements under relational theism, uh, all of which are uh, sort of on a spectrum from conservative to radical. Uh, the most radical extreme form of relational theism would be process theology, and and there God is completely impersonal, and the God and the world are very closely related in an interacting, evolving, dynamic relationship. Uh, neither could be said to be sovereign over the other, really. Uh, there's an interaction kind of model there. Now, you, you move further toward, back toward it. So that's the extreme far end of, as far as you can get away from classical theism without going into complete pantheism. Um, but then the next step would be pan, dynamic panentheism of someone like Moltmann. And there you would have, some, there you'd have something almost like process the, theism, process theology, but a little bit, le- little bit more emphasis on God as a person, uh, a little bit more uh, personal interaction between God and, and the world that is not simply necessary interactions, but is, is personally decided. Then you come to openness of God kind of uh, theology, where God waits for the creature to act and respond to his action and before he takes the next action, and there's a back and forth dialectical relationship between God. God is pictured as in time and uh, interacting with the creation. Then, then if as you come to the uh, the next most conservative or the closest to classical theism would be theistic personalism. And here, God is it's very closely related to what we call perfect being theology. The idea that you that you you sort of start with a human being as a person, and you picture God as a person. And God is like a disembodied mind. And then you start to attribute every possible uh, perfection that humans have and project out onto God and say he has that to the nth degree. He's all wise. He's all holy. He's perfect in, in every way. And then you, you subtract from that concept of God anything that is uh, negative in human beings. And so you, so you, you, you basically, have, in theistic personalism, is God is a person like us. He's a being among beings within the cosmos. But he is um, the perfect being. He is the ultimate being. Um, but he's not. But I don't think any of these views, any of these kinds of relational theism, yet have 
are, none of them teach the transcendence of God as the Bible and the Orthodox tradition does. They're, none of them really teach transcendence. And then there's one more step, and that is theistic mutualism, as James Dolzell defines it in All That Is In God. And there, he pictures God as kind of a composite of a, or not he, but, but people he's critiquing. God is a, a composite of absolute immutability in part of his essence, and then another part of his essence is mutable and responsive to the creation. So again, each step along the way, we're getting closer to classical theism, but we have, but I, the question is, where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line between process theology and that everything on that other side going toward classical theism is okay or within bounds of orthodoxy? Or do you draw the line at dynamic panentheism? Or do you draw the line at theistic personalism? Or do you draw it at theistic mutualism? Like, where do you draw the line between orthodoxy and heresy? Do you, how many of these different kinds of theology can fit within with the creeds and the orthodox tradition and uh, and can be seen as biblical? Yeah. So the, the question there is, where do you draw the line? And and the point of the term relational theism is that I, I want to draw the line between classical theism and all forms of relational theism. And that's where I think we have the big disagreement. So I think a, a couple of questions there, but the main one I, I want to press in on. So you want to draw the line it's classical. You have to be a classical theist to be orthodox and to be able to affirm, affirm Nicaea. Yes, because only classical theism is capable of expressing the doctrine of God as transcendent creator. All other views, all the relational views, do not really do justice to the biblical teaching of God's transcendence. They, so, they, so for give me an God, example of that. So, why is it that people who are not classical theists can't affirm transcendence? Because transcendence makes God um, a being who is absolutely unique and not in any way continue. His being is in no way continuous with the being of the cosmos. And the so the the difference between creature and creator is not one of degree, but one of of, of absolute distinction. The creator is a different being. John Webster puts it as the creator is not on the same plane of existence as the creation. And one of there are many differences, but one is that the creation, everything created, and, and, and here we're not just talking about the material universe, but we're also talking about the spiritual realm, angels and heaven. Everything that is created is contingent on the will of God, and it is dependent for its continued existence on God. Whereas God's being is necessary, and uh, he has aseity. He does not, he has self-existence. He does not depend on anything else for his existence. So there's no two-way relationship. The, the relations are, are mixed relations, mm -hmm. as, as Thomas was the one to explain it. But he was just explaining something that uh, had been long held in the tradition, that the relations between God and the world are not equal in the sense that the world does not have the same kind of effect on God as God has on the world. Uh, it's not to say that there's no relation between God and the world. It's not to say, it's not to preach deism, that God mm -hmm. is aloof and remote and not involved. That's not the point. The point is that the world does not uh, change God, but God does change the world. And, and that's the essence of relational theism, is to deny that element of transcendence. And so uh, creation ex nihilo as a doctrine to me, generate certain metaphysical truths. There are certain implications of it, mm -hmm. such as, for example, uh, 
immutability, uh, eternity, um, uh, aseity, uh, simplicity. All of these are metaphysical implications of God as transcendent creator. So I'm trying to think, you know, let's take someone who's, I think, closer to classical theism. So Bruce Ware or, or John Frame, for example, I think, you know, James Dolezal categorizes them as theistic mutualists of some sort. They're not classical theists. I, I don't personally feel comfortable saying that they're not orthodox. I mean, I, I don't, maybe they, they understand transcendence a little bit differently when it comes to certain entailments, but it seems they're affirming a creator creature distinction. They're affirming that God is necessary. We're not, we're completely and wholly dependent upon God. I guess I just have a hard time thinking that we have to put, uh, you know, all of these different, I mean, guys who are in the reform stream and say that, no, you're not orthodox uh, because you don't affirm a classical theism. I mean, is that what you, do you want to go that route? I mean, cause, and I think about perfect being theology. I mean, everybody does perfect being theology. Um, per- perfect being theology doesn't, isn't wedded to this idea that, you know, God is just a Superman. Um, there, there's a lot of variations of perfect being theology and, and every practitioner I've really seen says I have to be chastened by scripture and that I have to keep a creator creature distinction, uh, in view. So if I'm not just going to say, well, you know, take every perfect human quality and attribute it to, to God and to the nth degree, uh, there's, there's unique, distinctions in there. So, I mean, I guess let's just Bruce Ware or, or John Frame. I disagree with them, but I, I don't think I want to call them unorthodox. Okay. Well, there's two different issues. I'll come back to the perfect being, being theology and remind me if I don't. Um, you're right to be uncomfortable because James Dozell's book, All That Is In God, uh, named names and made specific statements about what people had specifically said and it, ca- it has caused everybody to be uncomfortable. Uh, I think that uh, evangelicals, conservative uh, confessional Protestants in the past have been uh, quick to label each other heretics and, and get into shouting matches, and that's not what we want to do. But, the, but, it, but Dozel's book is an opportunity to force us to think more clearly. That's what we need to do. So really what, what I think that I would say, I don't know what James would say, but, but what I would say is and people like Ware and, um, and people like um, uh, Frame and, and William Lane Craig and others, they are mistaken about certain things. And the things that they are mistaken about, they have a good will. They want, like I think that William Lane Craig wants to be Nicene. But I don't think that he, may, he he just doesn't succeed. He tries, but he fails. And this is this is different than saying that he doesn't want to. And so there's there's it's different than it's one thing to say that someone's view, uh, say somebody denies immutability. To say that that is a heretical view doesn't mean the person is a heretic, because to be a heretic you have to be intentionally trying to deny the truth. You have to understand it completely. And what I'm saying is that these, these people are, for the most part, inconsistent, and they are, they're just making mistakes in reasoning. And one of the reasons that I'm trying to, my next book is trying to, what I'm trying to argue is that I'm trying to explain, well, how did that happen? Like, why? Why was it that uh, for all these centuries, 
from, you know, take the Westminster Confession of Faith. There you have a statement of 1646 that, that, that sees all these attributes of God, like immutability, aseity, eternity, as biblical. It sees them as biblical. And then it also believes it's in the same paragraph says that God has, is merciful and loving and gracious and so on. And it doesn't see a contradiction. And the tradition did not see this contradiction for centuries. And then suddenly in the 19th century, some people began to see a contradiction. If God is the God of classical theism, if he's immutable, simple, perfect, eternal, and so on, how can he speak and act in history? How can he answer prayer? How can he, how can he not destroy Nineveh after telling Jonah to go and tell them that he was about to destroy Nineveh just because they repented? How can that happen? And then in the 20th century, it was like a floodgates open. And suddenly, what had not been a problem for anybody for 400 years was suddenly everybody had the same problem. Suddenly, everybody thinks that there's this gigantic contradiction between saying that God is the God of classical theism and that he speaks and acts in history to judge and save his people, coming to a climax in his self-revelation in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Somehow, that's all incompatible with him being immutable and having a saity. My question is, what, how could this happen? How could that change take place? Why, why in 1800 is this not, not a problem for anybody, but in 1900 is starting to be a problem, and by 2000, it's a problem for everybody. The common sense has shifted from everybody's assuming that there's no problem here to suddenly everybody is assuming, well, obviously, there's a problem. What seems so obvious to us, I think, exerts a great pressure on, on theologians today to compromise the classical theist view, to nip and tuck a little bit and try to make it fit with the, because there's an overwhelming consensus coming from the culture and of academic theology in the 20th century that says, this is a huge problem. Something must be done about it. And Frame and Ware and, and Craig and others are feeling the heat from, from the culture saying, this is a huge problem. And they are trying to maneuver in such a way as to keep the ship from from tipping over completely and and yet attain some uh, uh, retain the academy so you know we, we don't have to assume bad motives on anybody's part we don't have to assume that that um anybody is out to subtly undermine the faith and they're wolves in sheep's clothing that's not that's not it at all what, what we have to understand i think is that there is a tremendous pressure to see god in terms of some kind of relational theism. And my, my, my prediction is that if we start making concessions, that, that there will be one concession after another will be demanded until we are past open theism into some kind of panentheism. And I, I really expect that that will be the way it goes. And, and so what I'm trying to say is, you know, the classical tradition had already wrestled with many of these issues. And there's no need to panic and start making concessions. The, the, in, in fact, it's time to turn the tables on modernity and say that the, the, the assumptions that are driving this, this conviction that, they're, that, that the Bible, the biblical view of God is that he's, he's in time and acting along with us. We need to challenge those metaphysical presuppositions. And we need to say there's something wrong there. And I'm trying to do that. So I want to maybe unpack uh, this whole discussion around creation ex nihilo a little bit, if you don't mind. So <clears throat> I think what you're trying to say is, is that if we abandon 
classical theism, um, then we can't consistently hold to creation ex nihilo. Is that correct? Yeah, if we okay. abandon classical theism, we are perhaps unwittingly abandoning the metaphysical entailments of creation ex nihilo. Okay, so can you give me a couple of specifics on on those? And like, uh, so, so do you, are you saying you have to have simplicity to affirm creation ex nihilo and be consistent, or can you give just maybe a little, a little bit? Let's, let's go a little bit deeper and and give you some give us some specifics on things that we have to have if we want to really and truly not just say we affirm creation ex nihilo, but actually um, ha- have it and be consistent. Yeah, um, so creation ex nihilo is something that is unique to the Old Testament. I believe that uh, the ancient mythological, the ancient Near Eastern mythological cultures around Israel did not believe in any such thing. So all of the myths, let's think about where did the myths come from? Mm-hmm. So you have the Egyptian, Canaanite, Mesopotamian mythological cultures. What? What? How, where did those myths come from? Well, the the myths all start with chaos, and then the hero god defeats the chaos monster and establishes order. And the, the, there's a struggle that, that happens. And, the, and then the gods become the guarantors of the social and natural order. So the, you have the Mesopotamian River Valley producing lots of foods, an agricultural society, then it begins, cities emerge, you have a, 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 a caste system, you have a, a kings and priests at the top of the pyramid, and you have the people producing food, the population is growing. They're, the whole thing is susceptible to, well, the rains have to come on time, the rivers have to not flood too much, the flocks have to be fertile. The religion is based in a myth, and the myth is about how Marduk defeated Tiamat to establish the order and structure that makes this life, that makes civilization possible. That's why we worship Marduk, and that's why the, the, religion, of the, the, the religion of the Mesopotamians is a, a form of sympathetic magic. That's where ritual prostitution comes in. You want to, the high priest and the high priestess copulate at the right place, at the right time, in the right way, and to get the attention of the gods. The gods are uh, copulate as well, and then the, the fertility happens, and everything, the system continues on its way. And these myths are widespread, and they all have certain characteristics. They all have many differences, but one characteristic they always have, they start with chaos. So there's no assumption. The assumption is that matter is eternal. It's never stated explicitly, but, but how else do you understand? If it's not eternal, it's happened at a time before anything we know about. So the myth begins with chaos, and it begins with violence as the means of establishing the order. Now, you come to Genesis chapter 1, and in verse 2, lo and behold, the earth is without form and void, and darkness is upon the face of the deep. And so, what's that, what's that mean? Is Genesis starting in the same place as the myths? Well, actually, no, because verse 1 is there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void, and darkness is upon it. So what's going on here is that Genesis, and I believe that this is, Moses does this because of divine special revelation. He gets this information from Yahweh, that Yahweh is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And then the other big difference between Genesis and the myths, you take Enuma Elish, 
verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there's light. There's no resistance. There's no struggle. There's no, there's no violence. Why? I say that the reason that there is violence in Marduk's story and there's no violence in Yahweh's story is because Yahweh created that stuff and it's totally obedient to his word. Marduk did not create it. Mm -hmm. Marduk just inserted himself into the situation and tried to take over. So that's why he needs violence. Yahweh doesn't need violence because Yahweh is the creator. There is no, they, they loosely talk about the Babylonian creation myth. That's a misnomer. It's a Babylonian rearrangement of eternal matter from a chaotic to an orderly form myth. It's not a creation myth. It's, it's not about creation. And this is where the Bible presents God as different from the gods of mythology. The gods of mythology are essentially beings within the cosmos who struggle to rearrange the cosmos into the right order as they see it, what they want, and they have to use violence to do it, and then they claim, worship us because we have ensured the order of your society. What are they doing? These myths actually come from, I believe, from uh, fallen angels. They come from spiritual entities that are real, and they are attempting to corrupt the people, human beings, into worshiping them rather than worshiping Yahweh. I would su submit to you that the spiritual beings who are the originators of these myths know full well that Yahweh was the creator, but they're in rebellion against Yahweh. They're trying to obscure Yahweh's role because if they mention Yahweh and the creator, well, obviously he's the one to worship then. If, if they mention him. So it's, it's, it, they airbrush him out of the story. They delete Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, and then they retell that story. So you notice what I'm doing here. I'm saying Genesis is the original truth, and the myths are corruptions of it. Mm -hmm. It's actually the, the opposite of the way many Old Testament scholars approach this. But I think that the myths are airbrushed. They airbrush out Yahweh. They insert these, uh, these spiritual entities, these these, I, you can call them angels, but they're more than angels. They have a ruling function. They're more like what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, the principalities and powers and thrones and dominions and so on. There's a lot of spiritual entities in the universe through which God rules the universe, and, and some of them are in rebellion. And the ones that are in rebellion are the ones who are the originators of the myths, and they are the ones who, you know, they tell stories. Their myths are stories about themselves. So they're, they're saying, I'm Marduk, I'm your savior, I'm the one who guarantees your order, worship me. And that's where the myths come from. So if you think about creation ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo is really saying that Yahweh is different from all of them in that he is their creator. Notice, their creator. That's the other thing that they're trying to obscure. They're part of the creation. And so when I see Old Testament scholars today trying to reread Genesis as if, on the assumption that anything that Moses or whoever wrote Genesis could have imagined must have come from some, somewhere in the culture around him. And so they, they attempt to mythologize Genesis, turn it into a mythological, another mythological story that fits in with the other ones. I think that is, um, that's just absolutely wrong. So I, I go after that a lot in my book. And the point is that the creation ex nihilo makes Yahweh completely different from the creation. And so when Moses asks his name in Exodus 3, 
and he gets this mysterious response. There's three forms of the Hebrew word to be. Uh, I am, I am that I am, and, and, and Yahweh. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't think that it's on the surface immediately obvious to anybody what that means. I don't think it was immediately obvious to Moses. I don't think it was, it should, I don't think it's meant to be immediately obvious to the reader as the reader reads that. The reader is supposed to be reading along and the story is going along and it's a perfectly logical question. Who am I to say sent me? And then the answer is supposed to smack you in the head and make you go, what in the world does that mean? And the, the, the answer to that is the result of contemplation. You have to contemplate. And what did Moses contemplate? Well, he contemplates the Exodus. So the Exodus is a contest between the God of Yahweh, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the gods of, of Egypt. And in that contest, Yahweh wins. Ten plagues, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh himself is a god. His army ends up drowned in the Red Sea. Yahweh wins. Israel is set free. The question Moses would meditate on is, so why did Yahweh win? What is, what is the relationship between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt? Like, was it close? Like, did he just pull it out with a field goal in the fourth quarter? Could, could it have gone either way? Like, was Yahweh, or is Yahweh a thousand times stronger than them, or a million times stronger than them? And I think slowly, it dawns on him. Yahweh reveals himself to be the one who is. Now, if we fast forward for a moment to the early church fathers going out to preach Genesis and the Bible in the Greco-Roman culture. You've got a group of, the Greeks are a mythological culture, and they tell myths just like the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures did. They've got the gods of Mount Olympus and the whole thing. And they've got a pagan religion based on sacrifice and worshiping these gods and all that. But they also have a bunch of weirdos called philosophers. And these, these guys have this, this weird idea that the cosmos is governed by rational law and that the mind, if you apply the, the rational mind to understanding the world, that you can, you, can, uh, you can do all kinds of things. You can predict an eclipse like Thales did. You can, uh, you can learn about how the human body functions. You can, you can understand nature reason, rationally. Well, in the struggle between philosophy and mythology, mythology wins. The philosophers remain a minority. They, they're really smart, and they've got a lot going for them, and a lot of intellectuals see them as, as teaching truth, but the majority of the culture does not accept them. Um, the church fathers come along, and they are now trying to proclaim Yahweh in the Greco-Roman world. So how do they do that? The, who is the Christian God? Is he? See, the danger is that he's just going to get added to the pantheon. He's going to be another, another entity within the cosmos, like Zeus or like Apollos. And they've got to say, he's not that. He's, 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 he's greater than that. How do they say that? And so the, just, just to make one more, sorry, side detour into metaphysics. So what are these philosophers saying? Well, they say, look around the world. What characterizes the world? Change. Everything's changing. Uh, Heraclitus, you can't step in the same river twice. So Parmenides uh, was the opposite of Heraclitus. He said, look, it can't be the case that, that change is so pervasive that everything is unlike and everything is changing because, look, you know, baby giraffes don't come from elephants. Um, 
the four seasons succeed each other in, in succession. There's order in this world. There's structure. It comes from somewhere. It can't be just stuff happening randomly. So he says, no, actually, everything is all one. There is no change. Well, Plato then comes along with his theory of the forms and tries to address this problem. And he says, look, there is, it's, it's true that everything changes, but there must be something immutable and perfect and eternal that is the behind this, that, that makes this world have order so that a human being goes from being a microscopic little zygote to a fetus, to a child, to a, to a, a, a man, to an old man, and eventually a corpse. And in that whole process, still retains a personal identity. It's still John Smith that does that at every stage of the game. So how is continuity? Well, Plato's answer is because we divide everything into forms and matter, and each thing has a form, which is its nature, which participates in a universal, which is in the world of the immutable realm. And so that's how come there can be continuity and change, because each thing is made up of a form that doesn't change and matter that does change. Aristotle explains it in terms of act and potency. Everything has potential and actuality. And so the, the world is made up of things like an acorn that has the potential to grow into an oak tree, unlike a stone, which does not have the potential to grow into an oak tree. But, a, but an acorn being made up of a mixture of actuality and potentiality requires something outside of itself to actualize it. And so it has to have sunlight and, and water and nutrients from the soil in order to grow into an oak tree. So Aristotle's analysis is that everything is a mixture of act and potency, and everything for, in order to have its, its potential actualized must have something outside it actualizing it. That creates a chain of causation. And Aristotle thinks that has to terminate in a first cause that is itself pure actuality. Well, when the church fathers hear these kinds of things, they say, you know, there's some ideas here that we can put to work in expressing what Genesis is teaching of the difference between mythology and trends and creation ex nihilo. Because if we see God as the one who is the first cause of the universe, pure act, who is the one that everything else depends on, we can express the idea that the world is radically dependent on God in a way that God is not dependent on the world. And that can express the creature-creator distinction. And that can show us that God is actually the transcendent creator of everything. If we don't do this, we run the risk of adding Yahweh to the pantheon, and the God of the philosophers is still above and behind that and greater than Yahweh. We can't have that because we know Yahweh is the transcendent creator. So I think that the church fathers wisely decided to align themselves with the philosophers. The philosophers had a, a metaphysical explanation of the first cause, but what the fathers had was a basis for the, the unsupported position of the philosophers, which was that we can understand the world rationally we're using our reason. And the, and the church fathers at the Bible, which gives you the reason why that can happen, because God creates the world through his logos. And so there's a coming together at that point. And that's where classical theism comes from. It comes from this, this uh, decision by the fathers in the second and third century to embrace the idea of the metaphysically absolute, immutable, perfect, simple being, and, and to see that as the God of the Bible. So the God of the philosophers is the God of the Bible. I put it this way. The God of the Bible is not uh, 
merely the god of the philosophers. He's more than the god of the philosophers, but he's not less than the mm -hmm. god of the philosophers. And that's where classical theism comes from. Mm -hmm. and, and in that sense, I think it's um, the implication of revelation. Sure. So I guess my question when it comes to this doctrine of creation ex nihilo, I mean, you said all forms of relational theism deny creation ex nihilo. Um, and Bruce exactly Ware, that. what's not that? Exactly. Not exactly. What okay. I said was that all forms of relational theism deny the the implication, the metaphysical implications of creation ex nihilo. Okay. That's, okay. Remember in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the definition of what we're to believe is all that we derive by exegesis from Scripture and that which may be deduced from that. So yeah. this is not, this is not, I'm not saying that, that everybody who is a relational theist is, is trying or consciously, explicitly denying the teaching of Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that they are denying a metaphysical implication or deduction from the teaching of Genesis 1. Got it. That's helpful because the Credo magazine said it doesn't have the metaphysical implications, but I want to go down that road. So what is it, I mean, that in this chain of metaphysical implications that is denying creation eggs and hilla? What is it immutability? Is it simplicity? What what's the driving factor where if I deny X doctrine, I have then logically lost creation eggs and hilla? Well, it, it it doesn't really matter at which point you the denial comes like the denial happens different people deny different aspects of, of classical theism mm -hmm. so some people will deny impassibility uh, other people will will deny immutability other people will deny simplicity um, but it's it doesn't really matter which part of it is denied because all of these things are mutually implicating all of these things imply each other like you mm -hmm. can't you, you can't have, uh, you can't believe in, in impassibility while denying immutability. You can't, you can't really logically believe in eternity without denying immutability, um, while denying immutability. So it's like these things are interconnected. Now, I, I understand that a lot of people want to disentangle them, and they want sure. to say, well, I want to I deny this one, but I want to affirm these other four. I understand that's what they're trying to do. I'm just saying that I don't think it works. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I see how, you know, a lot of these are mutually entailing immutability, eternity, um, impassibility, all of them. What I'm failing, I guess, to see is how those core sets of doctrines are so connected to creation ex nihilo as a doctrine. Because it seems to me that you could affirm a relational theism type understanding and still affirm creation out of nothing. Well, remember that the creation out of nothing doctrine is the doctrine that that entails that God's being is fundamentally different from our being. It's necessary being, it's not contingent being, mm -hmm. eternal being, it's not temporal being. And so any any kind of relational theism tends to to blur that distinction between the being of God and the being of creation. That's really what I'm getting at. Okay. So I, I, I guess then the question, because it seems that we're somewhat front-loading, I mean, begging the question almost about, about you know, the being of God, his nature and everything to, to almost package in classical theism from the start. 
Um, which yeah, I, think, I, mean, I, I think he's, I think he's saying, you know, that, that all of that just is implied in Genesis one, one, hmm. like, is that what you're saying? I'm saying that it's implied in Genesis one, one, and it's unpacked over a thousand years of the tradition. Mm-hmm. And when we say that we're kind of baking it in from the beginning, beginning of what you mean, beginning of the 21st century. Uh, yeah, that's right. We are. Uh, because we've got a lot of history under the bridge already. A lot of the things that I find modern theologians talk about and puzzle over are mm-hmm. things that were already decided in the 5th century, and they're already clear. Um, so why muddy them? Like, like one of the things that Mullen said was that um, Thomistic metaphysics didn't exist yeah. until a thousand years after Nicaea. So um, I think that misses the point. Of course, Thomas wasn't born until 1224. So yeah. metaphysics in a narrow, trivial sense didn't exist. But if you read Kelly Anatolio's book, Retrieving Nicaea, he has a really nice summary of what, what doctrines were taken for granted by everybody at the beginning of the fourth century when the, nice, when the Arian controversy broke out. And so he lists creation ex nihilo, and he lists divine simplicity as things that even the, the way I tell my students jokingly is even the heretics believed in divine simplicity in the fourth century. Um, and so it, it's like the, there are many aspects of what Thomas was talking about that are in, in the tradition. So, so let's, let's just run through it step by step. So at the beginning of the fourth century, you have certain metaphysical concepts like creation ex nihilo, immutability, simplicity, which are taken for granted by everybody, but they're not systematized yet. They're, there's a lot of confusion about them. The Council of Nicaea in 325 is very important because it affirms the doctrine of homoousios, and that sets the the, the tr- that that actually doesn't solve the problem, but it 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 clarifies a debate that takes place now for 50 years. And during this 50-year debate between 325 and 381, there's a um, a, a development of terminology of hypostasis and usia that becomes the basis for the consensus that is reached in 381 at the Council of Constantinople. And then it's not over yet because the the process of clarifying the metaphysical meaning of persons and and natures continues through the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. Chalcedon is a milestone. The work of Cyril of Jerusalem is very important. But it's not really until after Chalcedon, in the work of Leontius of, Byzant- of Byzantium and John of Damascus and Maximus the, Con- uh, the Confessor, they are ones who really flesh out and clarify some of the metaphysical implications of saying that Christ is one person in two natures and what is a nature anyway, and that sort of thing. And then, when, er- when Thomas begins to work, the works of Aristotle have been newly recovered in the West. And it, but it's a mistake to think that Thomas is just some guy that read Aristotle and then turned turned everything Christian into a, a you know um, uh, and gave it an Aristotelian form. What Thomas is primarily, he is a systematizer and uh, clarify one who clarifies the tradition, the patristic consensus, the metaphysics of Thomas, are primarily derived from this tradition that I've just described. But he takes into account Aristotle's ideas, and he finds some of them helpful in clarifying and specifying uh, what those metaphysical implications of Nicaea and Chalcedon actually are. 
So for the so I think what Thomas is doing is he's saying, okay, the church confesses Nicaea and Chalcedon. And Nicaea and Chalcedon, if you take those those councils seriously, if you take those those statements seriously, entail certain metaphysical implications. How what Thomas is doing then is not trying to change them. He's trying to systematize them. He's trying to put them in a logical order and make it so that it makes sense and though it's coherent to to talk about the metaphysics of Nicaea. That, I think, is something that is of permanent value in the church. I don't think that it, it you know, Mullins gives the impression from listening to him that, that Thomas is just some guy, another guy with an, with an opinion. But that, that's, that's not, it's not about Thomas the man, mm-hmm. as if he was the be all and end all, as if he was the, uh, the, the fount of wisdom. The point is that Thomas stands at a point in history where he and his because he has a humble attitude where he's not trying to be original he's not trying to be he's not trying to knock the socks off his opponents with this novel theory what he's trying to do is systematize the tradition he's trying to say why is he doing this by the way because he's training dominican monks to be missionaries and apologists to to encounter islam and to uh and to encounter those people who were taking Aristotle and making Aristotle the basis of a secularization attack on Christianity. He's trying to clarify the Christian theological tradition about God and the relationship of God to creation in such a way that these these Dominican monks, these apologists and missionaries, were going to be able to state Christianity clearly, coherently, and defend it and proclaim it as the basis of the Christian message. That's what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. So to, to treat him as a, some kind of a, a philosophical dilettante who sits around in a house and just dreams up new theories and invents new terms for the heck of it, that's just not what Thomas was about. So it's not about Thomas the man. It's about the tradition as it comes to a climax in him. Yeah. I want to... Um maybe shift things to um, the biblical data and this uh, maps onto that. Cause I think Ryan wants to say that a more relational view of God is, is more easily discovered from the pages of the Bible. Um, so I want to give you an opportunity to reply to that. And um, you know, basically um, is cla- I know you've already, and I don't think you're going to shy away at all from saying that, you know um, we can use um pagan metaphysics um, to explain the biblical data. Um, but how do you reply to this charge that classical theism just simply is, you know, importing all of these pagan metaphysics um, into our reading of the Bible? And um, do you have anything to say about what maybe others are importing when they are reading the Bible uh, and come away with a, a relational view of God? They're importing Hegel. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is the irony of it, is that the Hellenization thesis is pure projection. They are, they are, here's the difference. The church fathers incorporated certain ideas from pagan metaphysics critically and carefully and integrated them into the system, using them to express what was implicit in the Bible. In the 19th century, liberal theolo- theology took over many philosophical and metaphysical concepts uncritically and used them to revise Christian doctrine to make it say something that it never said before. And then they turn around and accuse the fathers of importing pagan Greek metaphysics into 
into uh, Christianity. Um, you know, why is Hellenization bad and Hegelianization okay? Why are Greek metaphysics bad, but German metaphysics okay? This is ridiculous. Um, so the, the point is that I think Kant was wrong. Uh, just, just, you know, in a word, wrong. And, and the critical philosophy that comes from Kant is anti the Platonist tradition, anti the historic tradition. It says you cannot know things in themselves. So strictly speaking, after Kant, the way in which the Western tradition from Plato to the 18th century, the, uh, the whole basis of knowledge, the metaphysical basis of knowledge is now gone. Kant says you can't do that. You cannot know things in themselves. Well, if you can't know a thing in itself, you can't know its nature. And the, the tradition had never said it was all or nothing. It's not that, you know, you either know the nature totally 100% perfectly, especially when it comes to the divine nature, but you can still know it partially and you know it truly. But Kant says you can't know it. So the critical philosophy is a reconstitution. It's, a, it's an attempt to do philosophy on a different metaphysical basis. And we see this, um, you know, there are all kinds of attempts in the 19th century. Hegel's is one, but there are others. But look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, what I, I, would, I would say, the attempt to reconstitute philosophy on a Kantian basis from 1804 to now is a failure. We live at a point in history where we can say, it was a nice try, guys, but it's not ever going to work. Because yeah, so nihilism. Sort of the Kant stuff. I, I mean, I feel like everybody's pretty much moved on from Kant now. I think universally everybody agrees Kant didn't didn't get it right. He's 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 mistaken. So I don't know if the Kantian thesis is really driving a lot of current contemporary relational well, theism. There, I I would disagree with you. I think that everybody who says I'm a critical realist is trying to give Kant his due while avoiding his implications. N.T. Wright calls himself a critical realist, sure. for example. And I think that's widespread. Yeah, I, I mean, think- I, I, was, I was definitely taught that in seminary. I mean, that, I remember that phrase specifically when I was being taught about the doctrine of God and revelation and, and theology one, so. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, um, the tradition is realist. Modernity is anti-realist. And we're trying to go down the middle and be critical realists. We're trying to we're trying to have one foot in each side, and that's what I'm saying is is not working. Uh, it's it's so what I'm proposing what I'm proposing is, is far more radical than what most theologians are trying to do. Most theologians are trying to be mediating between modernity and the classical tradition, and they're trying to say, can we somehow retain the good of the classical tradition, but revise it in such a way as not to make it impossible for moderns to grasp or understand or accept, can we somehow bring these together? Can we, can we say that Kant was half right, even if he wasn't fully right? And, and, and I'm saying that is a losing game. That, that's just a series of making one concession after another, and it's a downward slope to heresy. So don't go there. Rather, like I, I'm saying, why do we think that the, that the consensus uh, you know, sometimes I call it philosophical naturalism, but that seems to be a consensus that emerges out of the 19th century. Um, philosophical naturalism is a reversion to ancient mythology because it is going back to a situation where 
the gods are themselves part of the cosmos. Hegel's absolute is part of the cosmos. Hegel's, Hegel's philosophy specifically excludes transcendence. God is, is history unfolding. He's the, well, Marx says he's the laws, or you can conceive of God in different ways. You can say God's the soul of the world. You can say God is the, the, the laws of history that are unfolding. You can say that God is the totality that is not yet revealed, but will only be revealed at the end. Pannenberg's got a way of doing it. Moltmann's got a way of doing it. There's many different ways of doing it, but essentially they all have in common the idea that God is not something other than the world and transcendent of the world. And even in that context, people like uh, Kierkegaard, who, who try to affirm that God is completely other than the world, because we have already accepted too much of Kant to begin with, when Kierkegaard says this, it makes it sound like God is unreal. It's very fascinating to notice that the, the, um, the, uh, the, there's a link there that I just thought of. Um, when, when Augustine was coming out of Manichaeanism and in, 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 the, uh, in the Confessions, he says, um, he says I, I, I had to conceive of God as a vast material substance diffused throughout the creation. And I, essentially, he says, my problem was that I could conceive of God as material, that is, as a part of the cosmos. And I could conceive of God as non-existent. But what I could not conceive of was the idea that God could be real and yet be a spiritual substance, not a material substance. And that is exactly what he learned from the books of the Platonists, probably the Aeneids of Plotinus. When he read that, he got this concept of a spiritual substance. And for him, it was a breakthrough because it allowed him to think of God as real, but not in any way a part of this cosmos. And I think that's where he breaks through to Christian transcendence, and that paves the way for his conversion. And then he begins to understand the Bible, and uh, and then he begins to be able to to explain Christianity. And but but he got help from those metaf- metaphysical those philosophers, sure. but but he got help in understanding a Christian concept, which is the concept mm. that God is transcendent, that God is actually he can be real without being a part of the cosmos. This is exactly the point that is lost in modernity, is that we, we don't know how to conceive of God as real and yet uh, not part of the cosmos in any way. So we have all these ways of conceiving him as part of the cosmos, which uh, make him real all right, but they, but they reduce him to the level of creaturehood. And, mm-hmm. and so how do, we, how do we think of God as completely other? Well, I'm saying for, for 1,500 years, the tradition has been doing this, folks. It, it, it's already been, you know... But we have, to, we have to become more critical of modernity than we have been hitherto. That's what I think we have to do. So one thing I'd love to have you walk me through a little bit on is I think you, you've, you've made comments about how creation out of nothing or a doctrine of uh, creation ex nihilo entails the classical attributes. So, because I, I mean, I would love this to be the case. I just don't understand the, the necessary entailment. So can you walk me through how it is that I get from that doctrine to simplicity or to impassibility? I guess it's, if you can get to one of them, then I guess you get to all of them um, since they're all mutually entailing. Well, um, I would recommend the Edward Fazer's book, Five Proofs for the Existence of mm-hmm. God. 
um, because classically he replicates the classical move very very well there. Um, and what he does is he he has five proofs. Okay, so he has the Aristotelian proof, the Thomistic proof, the Augustinian proof, the uh, proof from Plotinus, and then the principle of sufficient reason from Leibniz. Mm -hmm. So he has a chapter in each proof, and then he, he says that now we've proved the existence of God in five ways. But then he has two chapters, which are basically natural theology. And so he's saying now, since we have proven that God exists, in the process of doing it without realizing it, we have already said that God, in order to be God, must be certain things. And then he begins to draw those things out. And it's amazing how many of these characteristics of classical theism are drawn out of the very definition of God, um, which, which has which he has which have been part of the proofs. So that's that's how natural theology works. That that in the course of proving that God exists, you have to make certain assumptions about the difference between God and the world. So God is pure act, and the world is is a mixture of act and potency. Well, then you you have there then God being pure act entails that God must be immutable and simple, mm -hmm. and and so it, it, that's how it works. Is that the if the proofs are valid, and and again this is a I bet you if you took a survey of uh, evangelical and conservative Protestant theologians today, what percentage do you think would believe in the proof in the in the validity of the classical proofs for the existence of God? Yeah. Like maybe five percent, ten percent. Like most, most theologians that I know of operate on the assumption that uh, the proofs are not valid. Like, did you notice that um, Daniel Trier's new book on introducing Christian theology, which is uh, uh, meant to be a textbook for evangelical colleges, a one-semester overview of theology, doesn't talk about the proofs. Like, like to be able to talk, to be able to introduce Christian theology without talking about the proofs, I find that astonishing. And and I've and I, but it's typical. I mean, I I I don't think there would be. I don't think he's going to get a backlash of professors saying, "Hey, where are the proofs? I want to use your book, but there's no proofs here." Uh, I don't think he's going to get that. And that is what is the problem. It's that is that we all assume that we can get by without the proofs. Hmm. And so, and even if you believe in them, it's not necessary to talk about them. Yeah. So God, God is pure act. You honed in on that one. I mean, is that something that? I have to believe in order to be creedally orthodox in some sense. Is that, is there a seed of that buried in Nicaea or, or a later council? Well, I think Nicaea presumes simplicity. Mm -hmm. So if, if uh, you know, I mean, a bit, the, the Cappadocians spent a lot of time arguing against Eunomius because Eunomius mm -hmm. believed that if God is simple, then he cannot be triune. Yeah. So how do you include the Son and the Spirit within the divine simplicity? This was the, this was what they kept them up late at night. <laughs> That's what they were trying to work on, and it wasn't until they learned how to use the the words properly to express this idea coherently. Once they did, um, the the consensus developed uh, that uh, we accept the Homoousios and and three eighty one Council went forward. But it was really difficult to get to get to that point because. Because that was, but the issue is, is this the biblical doctrine? I mean, this is this what the Bible means? Now, people get confused here because when they, I can't believe how naive 
and biblicistic many philosophers tend to be in the way they read the Bible. They really, they really, they, you know, they might as well be snake handlers from uh, the Appalachians. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, you know, you guys are smart. You, you know, you're highly intelligent, well-educated. You ought to be able to handle scripture with more nuance than this. I mean, nobody thinks that because it says that Yahweh saved Israel with his, with his mighty right arm, that he actually has an arm. Yep. Nobody believes that that when the scripture says that he has nostrils, that he actually has nostrils. And so the anthropomorphic language about God's action in history is necessary. There's nothing wrong with it. It conveys truth. It's analogical language. But the same is true of the emotional language and God repenting and God becoming angry and all those kinds of language. It's it's all anthropomorphic. And so I, I just think that the... The, um, I just don't buy the argument that 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 theistic personalism is more obviously um, taught in Scripture. That to me is yep. like saying, well, that God has a physical body is the obvious teaching of Scripture. And if you don't see that, you're just not taking Scripture seriously. Like if somebody says that to to you to the average person, the average theologian will say, well, that's crazy. Yep. But I think we should say the same thing when when they say, well, the fact that God acts in history means he obviously is in time. Well. Pff- that's that's the same thing. Yeah. No. No. I I definitely see that, and I, I think I've said the same similar things myself. So I, I just like to blame the contemporary theologians uh, instead of the philosophers. <laughs> well, I'm not I'm not here to defend the contemporary theologians. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, good deal. So I, I do want to wrap this up a little bit. Um, so. We, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, let's just do this. I'll give you the floor to summarize or to, to comment on anything that you want or that you feel that we didn't touch on or, or talk to before, before we close up shop. Well, um, I noticed that, that Mullins talked about um, strict simplicity. Mm, okay. And um, that, he also claimed that strict simplicity is modalism. And whether he knows it or not, he's actually parroting the Aryan line here. That's what they said. This was how the Aryans and their sympathizers, like Eusebius of Caesarea, argued against the homoousios. They, the basic argument against the homoousios was that it was susceptible to the interpretation of modalism. Well, let's be clear about one thing. The phrase strict simplicity is nonsense in the same way that partially pregnant or fairly unique are nonsense. It's not that extreme denials of simplicity say that God is made up of many parts, whereas strict simplicity insists that he's not made up, not made up of any parts. Um, so a moderate position would be that he is made up of a very few parts. That is, not, that, is not, that is not what simplicity is saying. Simplicity, you don't almost believe in simplicity by saying God is only made up of three parts. If you think <laughs> God is made up of three parts, you don't believe in simplicity. Mm-hmm. So, so it's an exercise in missing the point. Either God is simple or he is not simple. If he is not simple, then he is composed of at least two parts. And if that's true, then there must be something that caused the parts of God to come together and stay together. That means God would have to have a cause, in which case he would no longer be metaphysically ultimate, no longer the first cause of all things. And more damagingly, I don't think he could be the creator of heaven and earth, of the heavens and the earth, as the Bible says he is. Now, 
of course, it did take the 50 years to sort these things out between 325 and 381. And it's, it's, it's difficult to see some of these things. Uh, I mean, it, these are complicated matters, and they require a process of contemplation and reasoning that most people are not equipped to go through. So it does require people to specialize in this and to, and to be very careful in their thinking. But the commitment of the pro-Nicene fathers to the doctrine of divine simplicity predated the fourth century and never wavered throughout the Arian controversy. The struggle was to understand how the Son and Spirit could participate in the divine simplicity rather than attributing simplicity to the Father alone. But that is precisely what the Nicene faith is. To be Nicene is to believe that God is simply eternal, immutable, and self-existent, and that he has created the world and spoken through the prophets and become incarnate in Jesus Christ to save the world from sin. Just because it is hard to understand doesn't mean it isn't true. Yeah, that's good. So I want to, you got that, your new book is coming out. What it's, I just looked it up to get the title. Contemplating God with the Great Tradition, Recovering Trinitarian Classical Theism. And I imagine a lot of what we've talked about today, you were explaining in much further detail in the book, right? Yeah, that's right. And okay. the phrase Trinitarian Classical Theism is, is my attempt to say that what the fathers did was not simply take over classical theism from pagan Greek metaphysics, holus bolus, without change. But they, they, they understood that. They took certain concepts over from the pagan metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And then in the light of the special revelation of the Trinity in Scripture, they altered and refined those concepts to create a Christian classical theism. And that's why I call it a Trinitarian classical theism, because um, that and that is what the Christian doctrine of God is. The Christian doctrine of God, I would never say that the Christian doctrine of God is just classical theism. I, I would say classical theism is a part of it, but it's not sufficient to say that it's Christian doctrine of God is just Aristotelianism. Yeah. That's not uh, good. Aristotle did not believe uh, certain things that that the Trinitarian classical theism would affirm, uh, you know, big things like yeah. Aristotle. That's, that's what you mean when you say that the, the Christian God or the God of the Bible is um, more than the God of the philosophers, but not less, right? Exactly. exactly. Cool. Okay. Well, we definitely commend all of our listeners to go check out that book. I mean, if you haven't read his first one, the the first one in this series, the interpreting scripture with the great tradition, uh, we we commend that one to you. That's how me and Brandon uh, built our friendship initially. We read that book together as the first book we read as friends. So um, we recommend that one to you as well. And Dr. Carter, we thank you for coming on to talk through these things. I think obviously me and you and all of us agreed that this is a very important conversation, uh, a lively one in uh, contemporary theology, churches, academic circles to understand who is God and, and what must we affirm of him to remain orthodox and Nicene and all that goes with that. So we thank you for talking with us. Hopefully you guys found this as helpful. If you have follow-up questions or ideas or thoughts, let us know. Let Dr. Carter know. I know he's on Twitter, so you can check him out there um, and shoot him a message if you've got something. Um, and I'm, I'll just, you've probably got a little bit more time now that you won't have the teaching responsibilities coming up soon. So I'll just tell everybody, overload him with questions. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you so much for the time. This has been really helpful. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the chance to come on and uh, talk to you guys anytime. Oh yeah, man. We, we, we let anybody come on and talk. If you know, if we if we have anything that people disagree with, we're happy to have them on. I mean, not everybody, but 
you know, with with due reason. I mean, I think Dr. Carter and us, we're, we're all kindred spirits. We love the Second London Confession of Faith, um, and we all are on board with that. So I think we're very similar in those in those ways. But anyway, for everybody who's been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic uh, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.